Hello, everyone. Welcome to Witch Hassle. I'm so glad you could join us. Today I have a splendid little interview for you with David Rankin. We're going to be talking about his new book from Hadean Press that will be available on the 27th, which I think is... Is that Tuesday? Anyway, uh, the new book that is coming out, very exciting, Sefer Yetzirah Magic, Magic and Meditations Derived from the First and Greatest Kabbalistic Work. David is an author, he's an esoteric researcher, he's a magician, and if you're into the Solomonic tradition, if you're into grimoires, you probably already know who this guy is because he is just produced a vast cornucopia of edited versions of grimoires and general how-tos on things like elemental magic, Kabbalistic magic. So, you know, just a treat to chat with the man about this new book and go over it. Lovely little book. And so to get to that interview wicked fast, here is, I think, to date, the shortest Plague Magic Minute I have ever done. This Plague Magic Minute comes to us courtesy of the 1903 edition of the Encyclopedia of Superstitions, Folklore, and the Occult Sciences of the World, a comprehensive library of human belief and practice in the mysteries of life. I wish I could aspire to such a thing. Ah, to be comprehensive. The impossible dream. Either way, our Plague Magic Minute comes from page 1330, and it is... The women of Albania make balls of rags and stitch them through and through assiduously, thus, quote, sewing up the plague, snakes, and sickness. So look into how to adapt that for yourself. I would recommend divination if you're interested in trying to figure out how to, how to make that work for you in the best process. But now that we've got that out of the way, here's my interview with David Rankin. It's a great joy to bring this to you. I've been having some interesting technical difficulties with Skype. As this interview gets gets sort of near the end, I start to sound a bit like a mixture between a robot and our 16-year-old cat, Sheba, who just screams all the time. She's actually, she's in the room with me right now, but she's sleeping. So I, I cannot get a, a good audio sample of her just constant yelling that is one of her more endearing qualities and i know i sound like i'm being sarcastic but actually i adore i adore how vocal she is anyway enough about the cat here's an interview isn't that fun here it comes to give folks some background on this book it it's interesting because it's you've done a lot of edited editions of books and you've also done some more sort of generalized practical books uh practical kabbalah practical mental magic but this is sort of would you call this a hybrid of those two sort of ways of going about that or is something sort of it's almost ekphrastic yeah it's more of a <clears throat> a different approach i would say about 15 years ago i decided i wanted to do some work that i've been doing from sefiyatsura and try it out with people and see what sort of results they got. And I was running a Kabbalah group at the time. And I decided to go for a different approach because a lot of people get put off Kabbalah. You know, you get told, oh, it's overly complex and it's very patriarchal and all this other stuff about it. So with a group of people who knew virtually nothing about Kabbalah, I said I would try these techniques out without giving them any preconceptions, not saying this is difficult, you have to do this, you need to know this, and just giving them the, the techniques without them needing any pre-knowledge to see what sort of results they got from it. And it worked really well. I think that's a really important thing with Kabbalah is it's not overly complex. It's just a lot of layers of simplicity that build on each other. And the work came from there. I carried on sort of teaching it to other people in workshops and groups and uh, finally, with a bit of nudging, I got around to putting it all into a book. So, for for folks who are listening at home, this book, like, it's it's not climbing the tree of life or this sort of like. Where where would you sort of put this 
in terms of what is, might be considered a more standard Kabbalah practice? This is entirely based on the Sefer Yetzirah, which dates back to about 2nd, 3rd century CE. So many centuries before, there's even the idea of a, a tree of life glyph. The Sefer Yetzirah, Book of Formation, is the original like, source book of Kabbalah. It's the first Kabbalistic text predates any other Kabbalistic text by centuries. And it has its own cosmology in there, which was subsequently built on through books like the Zohar and the Bahir and other Kabbalistic texts going through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. But I wanted to do something that was that is derived entirely from the material from that source text right at the beginning, which did not rely on the images or symbolisms that were later added on. So it's practices based entirely on the original Kabbalistic text. So, I mean, this is basically, this this text is at the root of, of Kabbalah. What other traditions has it had an influence on? For example, say Gnosticism or, or notions of the divine feminine or things like that. Funny you bring those up. I've just been asked to do a lecture next year uh, about the book. And I said, well, it's basically practice. So I'd need to talk about other stuff if I'm going to do the lecture. And yeah, I mean, at the beginnings of Kabbalah, there is this sort of cross-fertilization with other things that were existing at the time. You know, it's like no tradition develops in isolation. There's always borrowing and cross-fertilization from other existing traditions of the time. So Gnosticism and Neoplatonism are both there at the beginning of Kabbalah and have an influence, as does the development of um, Jewish macabre mysticism. And another um, aspect that's there in not specifically mentioned in Sefer Yetzirah, but that you do see in early Kabbalah is very much the divine feminine with the influence of the Shekinah and how that idea of balance in Kabbalah is constantly emphasized. So one of the first Kabbalistic creation myths is you have God surrounded by the Shekinah as a circle of fire and their union creates the universe, the angels, mankind creates everything. And the Shekinah is the source of all souls, so that every soul has a spark of the Shekinah in them, uh, which is the divine feminine. So something that kind of I came across in doing some background research on on the the Sefer Yetzirah and and really helped elucidate something for me about about the work that you did a little bit is that there's a there's a story in the in the Babylonian Talmud that on the eve of every Shabbat, Rav Hanina and Rav Hosea would sit and engage in study of Sefer Yetzirah and create a delicious calf and eat it. And this idea that this is a book that one might turn to when one has already mastered magic or or the metaphysical arts enough to sort of take care of one's material needs, that you can then turn to something like this. What, where do you sort of put this book in terms of like the goals that one might pursue in studying the the Sefer Yetzirah or in 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 sort of going through the techniques that you lay out in in your book on the Sefer Yetzirah? Kabbalistic texts generally fall into categories of magical, meditational, and theological, and Sefer Yetzirah kind of emphasizes the magical and the meditational. Um, aspects of Kabbalah more. You know, it's incredibly concentrated. It's quite a short text, but there is a huge amount of information in there, and there's a huge amount of implication, like just the uses of particular words imply, you know, you can infer a techniques from them, which is one of the sort of common themes in my book. Uh, but just from the use of a few individual words, it conjures images that enable you to create techniques. And yeah, I was certainly it is about moving on. You know, the 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 Sefer Yetzirah is a text where it assumes you, I suppose, have a, a certain level of balance in your life and wanting to progress further. But like in terms of progressing further, is it achieving more balance? Because I know like one of the one of the the techniques you have laid out here centers on the idea of drawing certain qualities into yourself or expelling their their sort of corresponding negative aspect 
from yourself? So is it, is it really a question of mostly trying to develop a greater sense of internal harmony, or is it reaching toward something external as well? I would say both. I mean, it's very much about internal harmony and, and to achieve as great a perfection in yourself as you can, which I think is one of the major goals of any magical system at the end of the day is you're you know, striving to realize your own genius and to become as perfect as you can be. And in the process of that, you influence your environment. So it will have an external effect on those around you. And as it is seeking to achieve harmony, then obviously one of the main things of it is to improve the world around you as you do it. it you know, it, compassion is very much an emphasis in Kabbalah and again in most spiritual systems, but it's something that often seems to get left to the side in more modern um, magic and paganism that people don't pay the attention to the essential nature of compassion as part of the core of you know spiritual development and achieving greater things. Let's turn for a moment to to the centrality of the of the Hebrew alphabet in this book. You help delineate that there are sort of there are different categories of Hebrew letters, but sort of there's a central section of the book where you give us each of the Hebrew letters with their sort of correspondences and their nature to some extent. How how should we relate to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet? Should we treat them sort of like spirits? Should we think of them as um, masks that some sort of divine energy entity can wear so that we can we can interact with it sort of how do you conceive of the letters of the hebrew alphabet in the world as as active things i would say that they're like gateways each one is a, a gateway that's sort of like a receptacle for a for like a, a different manifestation of divinity and that the combinations of those gateways take you through to different qualities, different um, directions, but all the directions ultimately lead to the divine. It's uh, different ways of getting there, but I would very much say it's a very active thing with the letters. You know, they're, they're not passive. They do, with their very nature of you know, being spoken, being intoned, have an effect. And so, yeah, I think as a gateway is, uh, I mean, you mentioned spirits, it's interesting. Very much later in the Grimoire tradition, if you look at the French Grimoire of Armadale, which is 18th century, there are actually 10 spirits in there who are named after the first 10 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it is an idea we see in the fairly recent past, within a couple hundred years of, ago from now. And indeed, if you look at other Kabbalistic texts, the Hebrew letters are implied to sort of have a, a life of their own. There's a story in the Zohar of each of the letters you know, approaching God in turn and putting their case as to why they should be the first letter of the alphabet. Uh, and interestingly, they are described as all being female. All of the Hebrew alphabet, all the letters in that text are considered to be female. So this actually brings up a, a thing I wanted to talk to you about, because you've done a lot of extensive work on the sort of Solomonic tradition, the Grimoire tradition, how do you see the techniques laid out in this book on the on the Sephirot Zira interacting with or being applied to someone who might be trying to use them in, say, a Solomonic context? Is there is there sort of a an easy way for those two things to dovetail, or do you see this as really a separate, a very separate practice? I mean, some of the practices could be used in the um, preparation. I wouldn't. You know, not in the conjuration itself, although obviously there are times like when you're creating magic circle, for example, where you are intoning Hebrew divine names. Uh, but the period of sort of purification before doing a conjuration, the, doing the bathing and the prayer and fasting or dietary restrictions or the various categories of thing you might be doing, that some of the things for accentuating qualities in yourself, for example, could be you know, used effectively as part of that purificatory process before you do the conjuration. You mentioned in the book actually a lot this idea of 
especially things like purification as a kind of demarcation, that it, it, it helps to indicate that there is a break from the mundane into the, into the spiritual. How important is it, do you think, to maintain these kinds of boundaries and these kinds of, of demarcations? as a magician? Because I know there are people who sort of think of the spiritual as a thing where, you know, you don't turn it off once you turn it on. This is just who you are now. And at any moment, something interesting could come your way. But do you think demarcation is, is it central? Is it important? Is it just sort of a technology? How do you feel about, about that? Well, I would say that, you know, a level of cleanliness and hygiene, a level of active practice, whether it be through meditation and prayer on a regular basis, yeah, is definitely something that's going to be there all the time. It's just sort of accentuated if you have a specific goal that you might ramp the levels of it up, you know, because you're trying to hone your consciousness and your will towards that specific goal. So you are very much focusing on that thing. So the demarcation is more that you're upping the levels rather than bringing in something which isn't generally there in your life. So yeah, I would agree that those are things that there is always a, a case for being there. And it's just upping them, like I say. And actually speaking of meditation, because I know, I feel like one of the, the kind of magic 101 tips that I see floating around on the internet and other places where those tips uh, tend to float is this idea that you know absolutely you should you should have a meditation practice and people don't tend to go much further than the word meditation even though i think that that word is used by a lot of different people to mean a lot of different things in the context of this book which has a lot of sort of meditation exercises or or the use of meditation how do you when you say meditation what specific sorts of techniques are you talking about like are these are these yogic meditations are these purely sort of visualization activities? What, what what sort of mechanical stuff is going on? Okay, well, on the one side, you've got meditations for like strengthening the energy body and making that as strong as it can be. On the other side, yes, things that also strengthen the physical body. So things that involve the use of the breath, ensuring that your voice works as you want to. So the intonation the vibration, you know, of the letters, some of those practices, which are also working on, you know, focusing specific qualities in yourself, again, towards greater balance. And if you have a specific end goal, the conjuration towards that as well. So it's a combination, really, I would say. In terms of the, the meditative exercises that, that we have going on in this book, and I'm curious because I, I, when we talk about sort of the, the qualities that one might ascribed to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the idea that sort of meditating on that letter in a particular way and toning and so on, that, that these things can can root that letter in you. Is there also a sense that this must be in some ways an active process? For example, if we if we if we choose a letter that is associated with um uh just let's say uh compassion is is there a sense that we that the letter itself is active enough that sort of visualizing the letter working with the letter intoning the letter and so on that this will make us more compassionate or is there a sense that in working with this letter we are to also consider compassion in our lives and what like material forms that might take i think the important thing with them is that they're not one-off things it is something that needs to be worked on going process you know like doing a single meditation is not going to suddenly make you hugely more compassionate you know these are ongoing things and i think as with um, much magical work if it is ongoing it will tend to like bleed out into your life so yes acts of um, compassion in the physical world whether it just be you know giving some money or food to a homeless person or helping with a charity or things that reflect on helping others without any expectation of reward, which is you know, one of the important aspects of compassion. Going back up to like a, a kind of more 30,000 feet kind of level here for a moment, when we look at sort of the, the books you've published over the last 15 years or so, one of the first is Climbing the Tree of Life, 
a manual of practical cabal, which you did in 2005, and and you returned to cabal in 2009 and 2011 with practical cabal magic and the cosmic uh, Shekinah. But I'm curious, how fundamental is Kabbalah to you as a as a practitioner of magic? How how sort of how far back does it go for you? Uh, I well, right to my beginnings of practice, really. Um, I started actively practicing theme, so like 41 years ago. And by actively practicing, I mean, I would spend minimum of two hours every day meditating, visualizing, doing breath work, trying out techniques from books I bought. And some of the first books I bought were on Kabbalah. So it kind of formed one of the foundations of uh, my magical practice and it's always been there uh, over the last sort of four decades or so uh, I there's a an elegance and a beauty to Kabbalah it's like I said earlier you know there's just all these layers of simplicity which build upon each other which sometimes seem to contradict but even the contradictions give you new perceptions and open new panoramas to you and I suppose as time has gone by, my desire to find out more meant I started looking back more and more at earlier texts. And climbing the tree of life was my attempt to kind of do a more accessible primer introduction book for people in terms of modern magical Kabbalah, really from you know, from the Golden Dawn kind of period onwards to the last century or so. But then as I was reading more of these older texts and looking back at Jewish texts from the Middle Ages and earlier, then I came to realize that that modern idea of magical Kabbalah, Kabbalah with a Q, is actually incredibly limited when you look at the whole picture. It's kind of like having cable television and only ever having it on one channel. You know, there's all this other stuff. So from there, I then kind of got into other things found there's a lot of very lucid writings which give you a lot of information about different practices we you know, worked through various things that i found and developed the stuff which has kind of ended up with the the new book with sefer yetzra magic and actually i think you mentioned in the introduction to this book or to uh to another book that you've, that you've written on a similar subject this idea that there are a number of earlier kabbalistic texts that are becoming available now that we simply didn't didn't have before could you could you speak on that sort of that that expansion of of the scholarship that we have right now yeah i mean with kabbalah like with grimoires the last sort of couple of decades there has been a a big big expansion you know there's more definitive editions of work uh on the zohar for example you've got the works of um rj kaplan which are a must-read on Kabbalah. His work on the Bahir, on the Sefi Yetzra, on Kabbalah and meditation, all these things are fantastic um, resources. I mean, you have people like Gershom Sholem back in the 50s, 60s, who did a lot of good work, but that's, you know, we're kind of being superseded. There are now people who are really going back, people who are delving into texts that haven't been available before, we're slowly starting to see them come out, which is great. Is there is all sorts of information which when you first see it there you're kind of a bit blown away like well we didn't realize you know people sometimes think this was like a modern idea and then you're seeing it like 500 years ago actually it's not a modern idea it's just we didn't know that people had been doing it back then uh, i'll give you a, a simple example not specifically a kabbalistic text but that has kabbalah in it is a text from i think it's about the 15th century which is advice to the groom and it talks basically about sex magic in that it advises the groom that with his bride, when they have, they should always have sex like before the Sabbath. And she should visualize him as Tiferet and being the solar sort of horse. And she, he should visualize her as the Shekinah. And their union represents that initial concept of the crea- creation of the union of God and the Shekinah. And that any child born of this sort of 
magic, sexual magical union would be blessed. So you know, that's, you think that's sort of medieval Judaic text. That's quite, <laughs> you know, it's quite radical when you consider, you know, people have got into sex magic post um, Crowley and people like, and Pashal Randolph in America in the late 19th century really sort of kicked off the modern interest in sex magic. But who are centuries before where just regular people are being advised that they should be visualizing each other as the divine and having this sort of divine sexual union. So, yeah, there is a huge amount of material that's just sitting there and now is coming out. And it's a case of finding the bits and putting them together because there is so much at so little time. That's really lovely. It's it's nice to note that everything old is new again. Yeah. Um, or everything new is old again, I guess would be a better way of looking at that. Something that I, I really admire and and really love about this book is that it does feel very much geared toward the solo practitioner, but there there is at least one ritual you have in there for someone to do with a large group. When you when you think of sort of these kinds of, of works, do you feel like this is mostly a solo practice and there's sort of a way you can adapt it to groups or is there a way that, that this could have more of a life as sort of a group a group activity? I mean, yeah, the, the 231 gates at the end obviously is um, a group thing and you need like, preferably 22 people can do it with 11. But yeah, I mean, it was written for people, for solo practitioners it can be done in groups. I've done it with people in groups very effectively and it works both ways. And I wanted it to be accessible for people to just incorporate if they, if they found it beneficial into their own practice. But certainly, you know, as energetic work within a group work very well as well. So I think it does lend itself. Most of the practices do lend themselves to group practices. I mean, the consecration I put enough example could easily be adapted and done by a group of people as easily as it can by one. I think all of those practices, you can have multiple people doing them at the same time. And, you know, if you've got a group of people who develop that rapport of working together, the harmony that can build up from the uh, the voices is really interesting. I've seen it happen or heard it happen many times within a group context where people are all vibrating the same thing and other voices don't belong to anybody are heard it almost sounds like an angelic choir joins in when you have all the group of people all doing intonations together of some of those practices and like I say that happened a lot of times not just once or twice and people afterwards be like whoa where were those other voices coming from so it does work very well in a group and I started the practices with a group of nine or 10 people, say back in Wales in 2006. And they so they were being done individually by everybody, but in that group context, and it did build really well. There was a synergy created by doing it as a group that was greater than the sum of the parts. That's really lovely. Actually, this reminds me of something. Um, so you, you say sort of early on in the book, that you, uh, I think possibly in the dedication, so even kind of in the pre-book, that you develop some of these techniques in part by doing doing workshops with folks. How has your approach to thinking about magic and developing magical practices changed through this idea that there, I mean, there seems to be a a huge explosion in people who are interested in these topics and are are enthusiastic about going to and participating in these sorts of things has your as your manner of thinking about magic and how practices can be developed changed as a result of the sort of uh the new occult explosion we've been having for the last i don't know five years ten years or perhaps um you can reject the entire premise of this question maybe you think it, there has no explosion it's it's just been like this the whole time well i mean i started being so it's publicly active in the UK in the, the mid-80s. And that was when I first started doing workshops and lectures. And it's 
it has been notable. There was a huge explosion in from the mid to late nineties with the internet. There's been like fragmentations, um, but also seeing certain traditions seem to be just like rising. The tides on them are rising. You're seeing it with spirit work, with folk magic, with grimoires. But I've seen a lot of people wanting more, like grassroots Kabbalah, which is another reason why I wrote the book. Because quite a few people who I met just in bookshops, not just at conferences and events, saying, oh my God, "What I really want is a book on this." You know, it's like you know, I read all this sort of stuff that's based on Dion Fortune and the Golden Dawn, and I want other stuff. I don't just want to be doing path workings. I want stuff that's not just about, you know, exploring my inner mental landscapes. I actually want to do stuff. So for me, because I've been doing, you know, running workshops and things for about 30, 35 years, the more you run them, the more you get the feeling of, well, one, it becomes easier, I think, to explain things clearly and simply. But yeah, there is definitely... I think in more recent years, more of a passion for, for people who are actually more serious. Uh, there was like a seriousness in the 80s, um, which kind of seemed to fade away a bit in the 90s and with the internet explosion. But it's like that seriousness has returned. People actually really want to get their teeth into doing stuff and have sort of substantial practices. I do think, and so yeah, the, the desire for workshops where they've got someone there explaining it, I mean, Having someone show you in person is always nicer than um, reading a book. You know, you can, I try and write almost like I'm giving a workshop to try and make things as clear as possible to the reader. But I think there is definitely an explosion in that desire for, you know, clear information and technique in lectures and workshops. So, yeah, I would agree. We are, we have been seeing that more and more. Actually, something I do like, I do appreciate about this book is the is the style you you have in it. You do seem to be meeting the reader eye to eye. You are not, you know, standing on the metaphorical mountaintop proclaiming the new system, the new method, the the true the true work of Kabbalah. You're 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 showing the reader a kind of friendly respect, which I I, I deeply appreciate. But this this actually brings to mind, you know, when we when one looks at say your work on doing sort of scholarly editions of grimoires, which, you know, are books that have much more in the way of direct instruction to them than the Sefer Yitzira. What was it like trying to build techniques out of implications, out of the sort of the text under the text in this in this situation as opposed to say trying to elucidate a set of instructions that someone had laid out to sort of make them more comprehensible because I, I i wonder like are when you when you see this sort of process of developing these techniques do you think of it as a kind of intellectual analytical kind of thing of this seems to be suggesting this or, or reaching toward that so i'll build something off of that or do you see it as a kind of I don't know, uh, divinatory or or channeling kind of experience. Like, do you do you see yourself in conversation hermeneutically with the Sephiroth Zero, or do you see yourself in conversation with it as as sort of like an entity in some way? For me, I mean, I've had this sort of passion for trying to create new techniques and things almost from the beginning. You know, I've written other books where I've put techniques and ideas that I've created together. And it's always been one of the big things was like, you know, develop a grounding in a system so that you understand the mechanics of it and then see what you can do with it. And most often I just get, it's like flashes of inspiration. I tend to think of inspiration as being like supercharged logic. It's like logic, you'll go from A to Z through the alphabet. Whereas when you have the flash of inspiration, it goes straight from A to Z. And all the other stuff that's in the middle is kind of just there in the flash. You don't have to go through the whole process so i'll just go i'll just something will hit me and i go oh yeah that oh yeah that so it is it's almost like it, it lights up and it, suddenly the connection is there it's just like a lot of the time it is that process sometimes there is that sort of logical thing of oh well this could make this and this and this but it's both of them it, you know both ways of working with it. it it's not just one or the other they both 
hit. I mean, I'm often most passionate about the ones that come from the inspiration, but uh, I think you know the some of the stuff that's from a logical studying of the process, and particularly when you look back at other sources and find verification for it as well, it's very satisfying. But yeah, I think both of those techniques of working play a uh, place in the way that I do stuff. Actually, how how much like outside of something like developing techniques, how much energy and thought do you put into things like divination and 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 sort of trying to get information directly from spirit is this is this a thing that that you actively pursue a lot or is it sort of a thing that we might say is is you know project oriented goal oriented in that sort of way for me divination tends to be for more specific things i have done quite a lot of divination for other people in the past, pre-ritual for, you know, I've been asking, can you do a divination as to what the likely outcomes are and if there's anything that they, I need to be aware of before going into it. Um, and certainly with conjurations, then there's usually specific purposes. Uh, I think it's a very bizarre idea just to conjure something up without having a clear goal as to why you want to engage with it and sort of develop a relationship with a particular spirit. Uh, so yeah i would say it's very much a case of i will follow i suppose the path of inspiration most of the time and sometimes that inspiration will say you need to do this practice or you need to try this and you know i will then sort of follow that path and see where it leads me and you know often into places i didn't expect and then i learn other stuff which then makes me reevaluate other things and it's just you know it's a constant ongoing process actually now that we're on this topic a little bit i am curious what kinds of what forms of divination do you favor these days because i know there's a huge there seems to be a big geomancy revival happening right now but i don't i don't know if that's a, a because it has this kind of beautiful renaissance flair i feel like it would it might it might attract your your interest and enthusiasm but i don't want to assume that how do you what 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 forms of donation are you do you mostly use i did do geomancy a long time ago like the i ching i used to use quite a lot a long time ago but i've kind of stayed with my old favorite really the divination which is tarot you know using the same tarot deck now for the last um 27 years 37 is, years uh, which is, is the fof deck um, which i love and that's the one that for me has the most in it because I've built up that relationship with it. You know, every card has particular meanings, which aren't necessarily the standard meanings, but that I've come to see over so many years of doing the practice that in recurring themes. And at one point in my life, I did um, you know, work as a tarot reader and I would see particular cards crop up again and again in situations. Okay, this is clearly you know, other influences that are present with these swords, uh, with these cards in this combination um i did actually de um, develop a tarot spread based on the tree of life with another magician gerald suster who died some years back now um which is a fun way of learning correspondences and having up to four people doing simultaneous tarot reading and the cards you have at the end of the, the game are your reading so that's quite a a fun one to do with people but most often I will do a tree of life spread just with the interaction of the different sephira helping with the interpretation of the reading. That's my favorite or simple elemental cross. That's for me what I've ended up on over the years. That tree of life tarot spread, is that available anywhere? Can people sort of read up on that somewhere? His book is out of print now, I think. The of I can't remember if I put it in one of my books. Um, I've written some stuff on it, which might be on my website. I'll need to double check on that. But if not, I can put it on my website. It's a fun technique. Actually, moving even further into things that you do um, that are not directly related to the book necessarily. I mean, in the in the book, we when we when we look at sort of the the meditative techniques that are that you you lay out for engaging with the stuff for Yitzira, you've got you know things that involve vibrating. They involve visualization and a lot of them seem to be sort of techniques that you do either you know sitting or standing do you ever engage in in sort of 
meditative practices that are more, I guess, physically oriented or, or kinesthetic in some way? Um, it depends what you define as meditational practices. I mean, I do Tai Chi daily, for example, which um, I find very satisfying as a kinesthetic energy practice. And I think that has a very strong meditational component to it. You know, you kind of get lost in the forms. And for me, I suppose Tai Chi is kind of it's more like sort of the void meditation side of things, which has always been a big passion of mine. Uh, so, yeah, personally, I do like incorporating body work into my daily life as well. I think it's an important component. You know, we, at the end of the day, we're sitting here in these bodies. You know, we have to cherish them and keep them in the best condition we can. I'm I'm curious. I actually I'm not familiar with this idea of, of void work. Could you could you elucidate that a little bit? What is what is void what is void work? What is the void in this context? It's meditating on the void, on nothingness. And it's a technique for um what you call in India practice dharana for shutting off the internal dialogue, you know, where we reach that point of nothingness where there is no inner voice, which again, incredibly important for magical work to be able to shut the dialogue off at will. So that if you do, for example, if you are doing spirit work and you have a, a contact with that spirit, you can recognize that it's not your voice and it's not your own ego dialogue, but that it is a genuine dialogue if you're you know, doing spirit work where you're connecting through scrying in a, a mirror or a crystal ball. So yeah, it's very much about learning to shut that dialogue off inside your head and just be able to let your consciousness be empty. That sounds wonderfully fundamental and also kind of, uh, I don't know what, like the simplest things are also the hardest in their own way, I suppose. So you've got, so this, this book is coming out in a few weeks. You've got this talk on it that you're preparing, but what else are you working on right now now that you've sort of completed work on this manuscript? Well, I'm working on another book, but it's very under wraps at the moment because it's a big project and I don't want to, sorry, give anything away about it at the moment. But I, I have a whole list. Um, I never work on just one project at a time. I've actually got a list of the next 10 or 11 books I intend to write. So, oh I mean, that's one thing because so many years of research and the writing, often I would find interesting information it wasn't specifically on the topic I was looking for. So I would kind of hoard it. And so I have like huge loads of directories of really interesting stuff. It's books I've started writing on particular different topics. So they're all things that I want to get round to at some point. So I've got quite a few years worth of writing already planned ahead. I don't know what order I'll do the books in, but there's quite a few that I do have in mind to do. Um, so... Besides the big secret book, which I will not press you on because I, I respect your privacy, are there any that you could share potentially on the on the big list? Or are you are you worried about getting scooped? Yeah, I mean it has happened to me before, so I tend to be reluctant to talk about projects before they are near to completion, and other people can't nab the ideas and produce their own version of it. Entirely fair. Something I feel like we should talk about for a moment is the reaction, the the interrelation our magical practices, especially sort of ones that involve the mind and the training of the mind with the current crisis. Has Kabbalah been a help to you in these days of plague and and lockdowns and and the like? Has this has this been a source of, of comfort or strength for you? In my day-to-day -day work, I'm a key worker, so I've been working the whole way through it. So for me, unlike most people, things haven't really changed very much when the lockdown over here I was still going to work every day so it didn't really have as big an influence on me as it did on most people I think but certainly I mean I carried on with the, my the daily practices and things that I do so the main difference was not going out socially or things which I'm not that social an animal half the time anyway so it's just seeing the weirdness in the world was the biggest difference <laughs> to that period of time it still was kind of ongoing and you know at the moment I live in Glastonbury which is and full of crazy at the best of times so yeah seeing the accentuation in people's behaviors this made me very aware of ensuring that my boundaries were very 
firm and that there was no way anything out there was going to come into my space and have any adverse influence on me. Well, I'm glad to hear that things have, have not been terribly jarring for you during during this. Um, actually, this does bring to mind something that I, I do want to bring up before, because we are, we are sort of coming up on an hour and I don't want to take up too much of your time because I, I, I appreciate the generosity of your, of your taking the time to speak with me about this. But most of the, the techniques that appear in, in this book are sort of inward facing or there are things that one might do um, with say a space or a talismanic object you know they're they're sort of in 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 situ but there there is one technique where you you lay out the idea of sending the negative valence of of the energies of some of these of these Hebrew letters at another person or organization as a kind of assault magic if you will do you feel that the cabal readily lends itself to things like cursing and hexing or is this a moment that you felt like you were really doing a big innovation no i think there is there are definitely elements of that there through capitalistic history and through things that came in you know that were concurrent with it i mean the psalms for example long history of being used for both protection and cursing. So no, I don't think that was something new. Perhaps just um, a sort of moment of passionate frustration at some of those negative influences in the world. Do you see yourself doing any further work on this idea of the of the Kabbalah in this particularly sort of um, offensive context, this sort of outward facing context? You know, if if we if we sort of look at the the balance that runs through this this philosophical system for all the all the good that it can do a person there there surely must be an equal amount of of negativity or or harm that one can kind of i guess play around with sounds a little a little too cavalier but you know there's a there's there there's a potency there there is a potency but i don't think i would write a book that put a loaded gun out there in people's hands when you would have to question the motives if somebody has a genuine motive then they can put the work in to figure it out for themselves I think is my attitude there. Fair enough. And and do you have any um, suggestions for people who are interested in in engaging with these these texts, but would be very keen to avoid accidentally inflicting these negative aspects on themselves or on others? Because I mean, if this is sort of is it just a question of like having enough firm control that you don't accidentally misdirect this, or is there a sort of broader um, protective set of techniques or, or or stances that one should take? Well, I think with any magical practice, if you set up the sacred space, and I gave the technique of the, the cube, which I think is the, the cosmic cube is a nice early Kabbalistic idea, but very appropriate, I think, for our age, rather than having a magic circle or a sphere which has to be bigger than the room or people's heads are poking out of it, what have you, most rooms are cuboid. So it's an ideal thing to just, you know, fill the space nicely. But if you are then doing anything in there, any of the practices, if it was something where there was concern about the negativity, then it's not going to leak out anyway. It's just going to, you know, get caught up at the walls. So you wouldn't, there was not going to be any risk of a bleed out effect to cause any negativity on other people. So, so the boundaries of the cube go both ways, basically. It's yeah. not sort of like the, the magic circle where where I think a lot of people treat it as the idea that nothing can come in, but things can definitely go out. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the cube, you're creating your own sort of little you know, microcosm. It's sort of like recreating the universe. So it's like you are at the center of your own little universe. And so as a result, you, your actions are taking place within that universe. So it's like a semi-permeable membrane. Things can be drawn in that you seek to attract, but things don't go back out uh, if you can hear a bell ringing someone in the building is set off the fire alarm probably burning incense oh gosh i can but it, it sounds much more like the sort of you know the gentle ringing of a bell that one might do in a temple or something like that so it's actually kind of nice i feel like that is the universe saying that i should be wrapping this up instead of taking up more of your time really quickly though uh, a few things that i do i do want to make sure we talk about the text of the sefer yitzira is not reproduced in this book is there an addition of it that you would point someone toward as being a particularly good translation into English? Or should they go just straight to the Hebrew and, and that's where um, they should start? 
the IA Kaplan book on the Sefi Yetzirah. He has the Hebrew and English translation, and he gives the different recensions because there are several different ones with extra or less material in, depending on when they were done. So Aya Kaplan's book on the Sefi Yetzirah is definitely the one to get. Would it be better for someone to get a good handle on Kabbalistic cosmology and the sort of the, the basic concepts before jumping into this book? Or would it be better to sort of go in, if you can, go in sort of innocent of those things so you don't have to unlearn? Yeah, I wrote it so that people could go in with no prior experience. The techniques are all probably standalone. You don't need to know lots of other stuff to do it. So yeah, they, you can just pick it up and do the stuff. That's the way I designed it to be. And as an accomplished practitioner and scholar of of magic do you have one perhaps piece of advice that you want to you want to leave folks with before before we close out the interview uh, hard work <laughs> <laughs> we live in a society now that encourages people to think instant gratification you can get stuff delivered the next day you can do, you know things are just gonna fall at your feet that doesn't work like that in magic you know you need to be dedicated disciplined and persevere and the results of the hard work manifest in the changes in yourself the subtle changes that happen over time but also the changes in your environment and so yeah hard work and that some of those changes are almost a change in the psyche in that qualities like compassion will just grow naturally as a result of doing the practices over time so that is what i would offer as my thought is that you know, if you're serious, just keep doing it and put the dedication in, put the hard work in, and you reap the rewards of doing that. Doing the work is the best shortcut that there is. Um, is thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. This was really a joy. And everyone should go out and buy this book and read it because it is, it is lovely and it is illuminating and it is very welcoming. Well, thank you very much for asking me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much to David. His new book comes out on the 27th, but it's available for pre-order now. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as a link to his website. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Witch Hassle. If you like the show, if you're a fan, uh, you know, consider popping over to patreon.com slash witch hassle, throwing a few dollars, or... I am led to understand, I do not know if this is actually true. If you leave a review on iTunes, it helps more people find the show. So, you know, why not give this this program just a little bit more speed as it careens entropically through the vast vistas of the internet. This has been Witch Hassle. See you again soon. <laughs>